Uh, back in 1966, uh, there's this movie, it was a James Bond spoof, it was called The Silencers, and at the end of that movie, uh, they had the very first ever post credit scene. And it, it never really caught on. Then in 1979, the Muppets had a movie, and Animal broke the fourth wall and talked to the audience, and that was kind of funny. And so that led to a few more films kind of doing these, these end credit scenes. Uh, but again, they never really caught on. And in 1986, Ferris Bueller very famously told us all to go home. And we thought that was hilarious. And uh, so then there were some more other kind of, you know, post credit scenes uh, done in film. And then in 2008, the Marvel Cinematic Universe was kicked off with a movie called Iron Man. And after the film was over, there was a post credit scene that furthered the story. That caught everybody's attention. And so ever since, uh, the MCU, the, the, all the movies that Marvel put out, they've got these, uh, these uh, end credit scenes that everybody looks forward to. And so all the fans of the Marvel movies have been enjoying these end credit scenes for the last 76 movies. And uh, I'm just kidding. It's 77 movies. And, uh, but I took Nigel to see uh, Avengers Endgame the other week. And don't worry, I'm not going to give you any spoilers. We wait till the end of the movie and all the credits roll and everything and the whole theater rolls sitting there. You get to the end, there's no, there's no end credit scene. And you just hear this huge sigh in the theater of disappointment. Ugh. Actually, only half of the people were sighing disappointment. The other half sighed relief as they sprinted to the bathroom in a three-hour movie. So they were, they were glad there wasn't an end credit scene. But there's like this idea that you don't want the movie to be, you, you don't want the story to be over. And what, what they, what the, uh, they done with those films is they kind of kept giving you the sense at the end that, hey, the story's continuing, the story's continuing, it's not over, the story's continuing. That's kind of the, that's kind of the vibe. And the audience loves that. Tell me the story's not over. Tell me this story is continuing. And our text today is John chapter 21. And John 21 feels a lot like an end credit scene. When you read the whole Gospel of John and you get to the end, it really feels like that. I'm going to read, here's how John chapter 20 ends. John chapter 20 ends like this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That feels conclusive. That feels like fade to black. Roll the credits. But then we're given an incredibly beautiful picture in this end gospel scene in John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. And after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples, they were all together, and Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll go with you. So they went out, and immediately they got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had come, now Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples, they didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast. And now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. And therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, 
It's the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, they were about 200 cubits away, dragging the net with fish. And then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've caught. And Simon Peter went up, and he dragged the net to land, and it was full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said to them, come, eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he had raised from the dead. This is God's word. Now in the same way that uh, post-credit scenes, they give the audience the sense of excitement that showing that you know, the story is continuing, that's what's going on here. It, at the end of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, Jesus was revealing himself for a period of 40 days, and we've been going through this series on these risen accounts of the risen Christ. He's giving us, he's teeing us up for this idea that the story is not over, that it's going to continue. It's going to continue by his spirit. His, his earthly ministry is over, but his heavenly ministry is just beginning, and he's going to continue his ministry through his church, and he's going to continue it by his spirit. So we get this we get, we get this great image that John 21 gives us, giving us insight into all of this. Because a risen Christ means there's another chapter, and that chapter is going on forever. For those of you who've maybe uh, new to church, new to the scriptures, um, there's these two books in the Bible, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. Well, that's actually one book. It's called a literary bifid. It's one book that was basically too big for the scrolls in the ancient world to just keep going and going and going. So they broke it into two books. But it's a literary bifid. It's the Gospel of Luke is, they're both written by Luke. So the Gospel of Luke is, hey, here's what Jesus did. And then the book of Acts is, here's what Jesus is continuing to do by the Holy Spirit through his church. The story continues. So John 21, this text we just read about Jesus coming to the shore with the fish, it gives us this... It gives us insight into how this is all kind of playing out in the, in, in the beginning. Verse 3, Peter says, I'm going fishing. What was his motivation for that? We don't really know. Lots of commentators and theologians over the years have spe- speculated. He's trying to grapple with the resurrection. Uh, is he, it, it does, he doesn't know what to do next with his life. So he's going to go back to his vocation. And some people have made you know, lots of sermons about the importance of vocation. And that would be great. And that would be helpful. But it's not that the text tells us that. Maybe he was just hungry. You know, this is also a factor. Man's got to eat. Maybe he just had to go fishing. The point is that the reason why he went fishing is of no importance. But what Jesus did when this professional went to go and do his professional trade, well, that's of the utmost importance. Just think about this for a second. Peter has done this his whole life. This This is the one thing Peter can do. You read through Peter's life, there's lots of things Peter couldn't do, and he failed at. This is the, he's like, there's the one thing I know how to do, fish. This is the one thing I know how to have success at. This, fishing is the one thing Peter can do all on his own and have success until Jesus decides it's time to do some healing and providentially causes this professional to have no success. Verse 6, 
Jesus shouts out and he says, children, which you need to know is like, it's like ancient slang, really. When you read the Greek commentaries, why does he say children? Some of your translations say other things. But it would be like, really, the equivalent of him be like, dudes, bros. Like, it was just like children in, in that time and in that way was like a, um, a, a, a super close term of endearment. Okay, so what you want to get is he's not just yelling, hey, you people. He's like, he's really wanting them to know that it's him. He's like, you know, guys, do you have any food, right? This is what happens. And he says, cast your net on the other side, which to me, I kind of feel like this is the first miracle and maybe the 153 fish is the second miracle because how many of you have ever been fishing? How many of you have been fishing on a dock or in a little boat and you're, you're fishing and you don't catch anything in eight minutes? What's the first thing you instinct, instinctively do? Oh, you know, there's no fish over here. I'm give it. I mean, if you've ever fished with children, children fish on docks like this. Whoop, 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 whoop. They have, their patience is, is zero. So they, as soon as the fi- thing's in the water, no, there's no fish over there. It's probably should try over there. No, there's definitely no fish over there. So you can imagine these guys have been working all night. They're professionals. I'm sure they would have thought of casting on the other side of the boat, for one thing. The other thing is, if you go uh, to uh, Kibbutz Genosar, there's a museum there. And they have a first century Galilean fishing boat. And if you go and look at that Galilean fishing boat, it's 7.5 feet wide. So it's kind of ridiculous advice. Hey, you didn't catch anything all night. Well, why don't you drag in all of these salty, heavy nets and go to all of the trouble of carrying them seven and a half feet and then plopping them over on the other. I think the first miracle is that the, is that the disciples did it. And then the second miracle is they caught the fish. And so when we look at how this is all playing out here, uh, and maybe it's important for me to mention this for those of you here exploring Christian faith. You know, I mentioned there's 153 fish. There's all of these details that are kind of packed in here, which are helpful for you to consider that the Bible is not some sort of ancient legend. It's not just poetry. Because when you're given details like 153 fish, oh, hey, before Peter jumped in the water, he put on his overcoat because he took it off. And, you know, the disciples were 200 cubits away. They followed in these little boats. You get all these little details. That's not how you write poetry. That's how they recorded history. This is like eyewitness stuff. So it's important to consider the, why we're given those kind of details in this text. But they, they, they do what Jesus says, and then they catch, all the, they catch this massive load of fish. And it's almost as though Jesus, in this, in this end scene, is drawing together all of these teachings that he did earlier. And now he's doing like a live-action parable. Teachings like, apart from me, you can do nothing. In John 15, he's talking about himself being the vine, and he says that, you know, we would always take that, think about that in a spiritual sense, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing of any spiritual consequence, or apart from me, you can't, you know, we don't think, apart from me, you can't do the job you've been doing your entire life as a fisherman. You're professional, you know what you're doing, you've got brains and skills, and you obviously don't need Jesus to catch fish, you've been catching fish your whole life. But then all of a sudden, this miracle happens where this professional can't do what he normally does, and I think it's worth meditating on something here. You see, what, John is, what this scene is provoking us to consider is that the gospel is not a crutch. The gospel is not a crutch that you pull out and you kind of prop up if you happen to have trouble with something that you can't do. The gospel is a defibrillator that wakes you up to the fact that Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. Jesus is the reason why any of us can do anything. And he's the risen king who will one day come and restore everything. 
by this simple miracle of a professional doing what he normally does and then not all of a sudden being able to do it and drawing all of the gaze to Jesus, it's like Jesus standing there and saying, P.S. I'm not a crutch. I'm the sustainer of all things. You don't come to me when there's something that you can't do. You come to me because even the things you can do, you need me to do. In fact, the only reason you can do the things you can do is because of me. It's radical. It's incredible. As Jesus draws our gaze to himself. And it's also important to note that the disciples have been in this situation before. They've been in this situation before. They got that advice before. And they got the same result before. You can read it in Luke chapter 5. It happened before, but it's a big difference. Jesus was with them that time. And Jesus is not with them this time. When it happened the first time, Peter shrunk back in the boat and he said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And this time, Peter doesn't shrink back in the boat, he jumps out of the boat. Why? I think it's worth considering a couple things that are very, very encouraging here. See, the first time this happened, Jesus is right there with them. Second time, He's not with them at all. Uh, The first time it happened, Peter, in the presence of Christ's power, he wants to get away from Jesus. But the second time, Peter recognizes Christ's power and he wants to get to Jesus. Why? See, the gospel changes everything. The first time this happened, Jesus had not yet gone to the cross. And Peter was very aware of his sin. The second time this happened, Christ had already gone to the cross. And Peter was very aware that Christ had absolved all of his sin. The first time, he wanted to shrink. He said, get away from me, I'm a sinner. But this time, the sinner jumps in the water to go, go to Jesus. See, there is, if Jesus is nothing more than an, than an example for you to, be, to, for you to follow, then his example of perfection is going to crush you. You're not going to want to be around him. You're not going to want to come to church. If Jesus is just a moral example, he's like, hey, let's all just try and be more like Jesus. If that's all he is, his perfection is going to be a reminder to you of how sinful you are. But if Jesus is your savior, then his presence is not a, is, is, is not a condemning reminder of your sin. His presence is a glorious reminder that he has taken away all your sin. Rather than depart from me, I'm sin, I'm, I'm sinful, you'll swim to him. You'll want to be with him. You'll want his presence in your life. You'll desire it. The gospel changes absolutely everything. And if you're here this morning, again, kind of exploring Christian faith, when I say the word gospel, I don't mean everything from Genesis to Revelation. Everything from Genesis to Revelation points to the gospel, but the gospel is a very specific thing. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to take away your sin. That's what it is, specifically. And so, the, the significance of this is it, the gospel is good news. It means it's not something that you do. It's something that's done for you. This entire encounter at sea, their inability to catch fish, Jesus being the one bringing the fish, it's a, it is a glorious live-action picture of the gospel, of Jesus who's coming to do what it is that we absolutely cannot do. And when you notice how it's on display in the, pa- in the passage, you see that's exactly what's going on. The disciples can't do anything. Jesus is doing everything. And so if you don't see Jesus that way and you see him as a moral example, he's not going to be liberating to you. He's going to be crushing to you. He's going to be a constant reminder of your failure. But you see, for Peter, 
The first time, it was a constant reminder of his failure, but the second time, it was, he was recognized, that's the one that has absolved all my sin and all my failure. And he swims, and he swims to meet Jesus. Now, uh, you know, as I said earlier, it's as though we're th- Jesus is reminding us of these, of these teachings, apart from me, you can do nothing. Another thing that Jesus said earlier that we see on display here is Jesus says, if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. And the same verb in the Greek for I'll draw all men unto me is the same draw in the nets. I will haul all men unto me, haul in the nets. I do the heavy lifting of salvation. You cannot do it. You notice that they couldn't lift the nets and bring them into the boat? Jesus is drawing all of our attention to the fact that it is by uh, his grace that all of us are here worshiping and it's by his grace that we all um, uh, come to salvation in him. He does the heavy lifting. But he calls the disciples to share in the gospel just as he calls all of us to share the gospel. He, you know, he didn't say, children, do you have any fish? And they said, no. And Jesus said, well, sit back and relax while I fill your boats. Glory. And, they, and the fish just jumped in and they didn't do any work. Well, that's not how the text goes, right? There's a participation, but he is doing the heavy lifting. The Christian life, for those of you who've been in, been in church your whole life, you've been a believer for a long time. We don't have any participation in, in uh, saving ourselves. Christ does that alone. And then he invites us into a life of imitation and a life of participation as by his spirit he continues to do glorious work through, through us. And you see this uh, on display here. In the same way that Christ filled the nets by his power, he fills the church by his power. He's always filled the church by his power. He's globally filled the church, historically by his power. And I don't just mean numerically, although that's true. He fills you and I by his power. There's a filling that he, that he does, uh, and it's by his great grace, just as we see here. You know, they worked and they worked all night, and despite all their best work, they were empty and in need. Jesus shows up by grace alone. He fills them. He gives them everything that they need. This is a glorious picture of the gospel. And so, again, for those of you that are exploring faith this morning, you are not accepted by God on the basis of your hard work, just like this, the image in this live-action parable. It's not your hard work. It's a gift of his grace. And for those of you who've been in church your whole life, the gospel is not simply the power that brought you to faith. It's the power by which you and I live it out. Because Jesus is not simply a moral example. He's our Savior. And it's precisely because he's our Savior that we desire his example. It's precisely because he's our Savior. It's precisely because he has done the work of grace that we desire to be, to be imitators of, our, of the Lord of grace and, and to be his disciples in that way. And this end scene here, the end scene reminds us a little bit of the beginning scene because the end scene is the disciples fishing and the beginning scene is Jesus finds his disciples while they're fishing. So Jesus does this huge full circle situation here. It reminds us of when he meets them and he says, I'll make you fishers of men. Right? Drop your nets, boys. I'll make you fishers of men. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus asks for some fish. Peter brought the fish to Jesus. Here's the live action parable. The only reason the fish are there is by the power of Jesus. And 50 days later in Acts chapter 2, Peter's going to bring thousands of people to Jesus by the power of Jesus. Right? Peter's days fishing for fish have come to a close as days of fishing for men have come you know they're now in the beginning and we want to look at this and recognize that you know Jesus wasn't physically present in the boat 
when he drew the fish to those nets. Jesus is not physically present with us today as he continually and globally draws people into his grace, draws people into salvation, draws people into his church, and yet he does it. So I want you to consider the significance of this fishing, the metaphor of fishing. Consider the significance of when he, when he first found them and now what he's launching them into. When he first found them, hey, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And then at the bookend, the post-credit gospel scene is he's, he's going to do a healing work so that they can be fishers of men. What are the implications of that? You heard that term, and many of us think, well, it means you know, conversion. Right? Somebody, somebody uh, shares the gospel and somebody hears the gospel and then, they, and then they come to faith in Christ. And there, that's what it means to be a fisher of men. It does mean that. But I want to take this metaphor deeper. Because the ancient world really operated on symbols and metaphors, and people really related to symbols and metaphors. And so the sea was a, was a symbol of a place of darkness and chaos and unbridled power and death. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. In other words, we're going to, by my power, not yours, we're going to haul people out of darkness, haul people out of chaos, soul chaos, haul, pe- haul people out of inevitable soul death. We're going to haul them out of that. It's moving from one environment to another, right? That's why in, uh, for example, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, it says God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so when you look at how Jesus related to people, and then you think about the metaphor, fishers of men, you get a pretty good idea of the kind of life and family and body and church and new city that Jesus was actually drawing everybody into. When you look at how Jesus related to people, you get a good idea of what, he, what he's drawing us into once he hauls us from the waters of our old life by grace. Right? If you follow Jesus' metaphor of fishing and making them fishers of men, all of us in the church, we've been drawn by Christ into the net of his grace. We've been drawn out of the waters of the culture. We've been brought into his kingdom, and Christ is the king. And so when you look at the way Jesus engaged in the community, you get a really clear picture of his vision for church community, right? There's not racial or gender or economic, uh, you know, social prominence, superiority. There aren't class systems in the way Jesus related to people. You don't, you don't find him ranking people according to success or failure or sin or anything. You don't see him judging people according to whether they're married or not married or divorced. Or you, What you see when you look at Jesus is how he related to people in such a way that the, that the religious who's who couldn't stand it. They hated it. You're, eat, who, you're, you're, you're with tax collectors and sinners, and they couldn't stand it. So when we look at what Jesus was up to, and then he says, you know, I'm going to make you guys fishers of men. It's not just conversion. Oh, I used to believe that, and now I believe that. It's actually that we, church, have been drawn to the net of grace. We here are worshiping Christ, and here now is built a community, here in this room and around the world of believers who have been saved by his grace, who desire, therefore, that by the work of his grace, that there would be a renewal and a care and a love for the way that we care for those that come into this community by grace. And so that's when we consider this metaphor of fishing and what we're, what we're actually being drawn out of and being drawn into, we look at Jesus and we see just the radicality of what, he, of what it is that he's doing as he saves us into a, uh, into a new, glorious, liberating way of living. Now, if I ended the sermon right there, and I said, okay, so there you got it. Go be fishers of men. We've been called to be fishers of men. Build a, build a community here whereby when people get drawn 
by God's grace, out of the waters of the culture, they experience a different culture here. Got it? Everybody got it? Okay, good. Let's do it. If I ended the sermon there, that would be faithful and true biblical teaching. But it wouldn't be particularly encouraging. And in fact, for some of you, it might be incredibly draining. Some of you may walk out of this place and go, yeah, that's right. I do got to be, you know, I, I, I do have to be one who shares the gospel as the disciples do and create a community of faith. Yeah, okay, let's roll up our sleeves and do that. But that might be incredibly draining if that's all it was. But you know, the text doesn't, the text takes us someplace beautiful here. And we want to remember, of course, that the same Christ that filled the nets, he fills his church. And again, not just numerically. He's filling us deeply. He's filling us richly. And so we will do all of this, but we're not going to do it by the power of our will. We're going to do this by the power of the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, right as, this, as, they, as they come in from the shore, it's like the gospel writer writes in such a way that the camera pans down. And the camera pans down off of the fish. Hey, you guys know you're not supposed to be fishing for fish, right? But, but this is the dawn of a new day, and you're going to be fishers for men. But then it pans down, and there's a, there's a charcoal fire. And there's only two places in the New Testament there's a charcoal fire. The first, the first charcoal fire is mentioned when Peter denies Jesus, and the second charcoal fire is here when Peter's being restored by Jesus. So how do we go and do all this? Well, we do this by the power of his grace, by the, by the Jesus that restores, by the Jesus that heals, by the Jesus that does the deep work in us. You know, many of you have come in here from various backgrounds and contexts, some of them, you know, encouraging, uh, some of them not so encouraging. Some of them, uh, some of you have come in here from contexts whereby uh, the idea of being a minister of the gospel makes you want to fall into the fetal position. You feel like, just stick an IV in me. I don't have any energy for that. But the same Jesus that saved you fills you. It's by his power and by his grace and by his strength and not yours. And so we pan down on this, this fire of coals here. You know, the first time Peter was at this fire, he said, I don't belong to him. At this fire, Jesus says, sit, eat. You belong to me. First fire, Peter says, I don't know him. Now this fire, Jesus says, sit down, eat. I know you. The first fire, radical, radical failure. And here Jesus resets the scene so that Peter's failure can be met with forgiveness. And what Peter thought was going to be a routine night full of work, it turns out to be a restorative morning full of grace. Jesus says in verse 12, come and eat. You know, he, do you understand the great irony of all of this? They're out fishing all night and Jesus already has fish on the, on the fire. How did they get there? I don't know. Do you whistle at them? Hey, get it. Who knows? I don't know. My mind thinks in cartoons sometimes. That's how I imagine it. But the point is, Jesus is like, I fill you. I do the filling. I do the healing. I do the restoring, I do the reviving, I do the sending. And just as they were sent, we're sent, right? But it's with great joy, because it's not by your strength or mine, by your eloquence or mine, by your ability or mine. It's by his spirit. The same Jesus that filled the nets fills his church. He just always has. And you and I have been invited into that great participation. Not because we can actually do it. But because he can, he will, and he invites us in that participation so that through us, he will do it. So, 
Eating with Jesus is a massive New Testament theme. I I touched on it earlier and I'm going to close with it now. It's a massive theme. Look at the people Jesus ate with. Eating with Jesus is a huge theme. Feasting with Jesus is a huge theme. Eschatological spoiler alert. Read the end of the Bible. We're eating with Jesus. It's a huge theme. Back up to Isaiah 25 and all the prophecies. What, What are they all talking about? Feasts. Eternal feasts. Well-aged wine. You know, prophecies I can get behind. You know, it, this, is the, this is a huge theme. Because to, be eat, to eat with Jesus is to be embraced by Jesus. To eat with Jesus is to be loved by Jesus. Right? That's why the religious who's who couldn't stand it. He ate with prostitutes and thieves. He was the friend of sinners, which, by the way, is all of us. And he eats with them. To eat with Jesus is to encounter his love, receive healing from his grace, be revived by his comfort and filled with his strength. So church, we will share the good news of the gospel in this city. And we will build a community here so that when people come in, they experience a love and an acceptance that is not like the kingdom of the world operating on that system because we've been drawn out of those waters. And they will experience that here. And we will do it. But we're not going to do it by the power of our will. We're going to do it with great joy, empowered by the Spirit. Because we eat with Jesus. Because we are filled by Jesus. Because each and every Sunday, Jesus encounters us with his love. We receive his healing. We are revived by his comfort. We go out as ministers of the gospel by his strength. So let's eat.